0: Well, it is uh, perhaps just worth mentioning that tomorrow is also uh, the birthday of Marg Steinlin. No <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed. Also turning 40. <laughs> well done, Mark. We, we made it. And tomorrow is also Adam Archer's birthday. Yeah. Unlike myself, a young man turning 18. That's significant. Yeah. How about that? With 365 days in a year, it's statistically unlikely in a group this size three people would share the same birthday. All right, Isaiah 43. Isaiah chapter 43. We're going to reach to the end of verse, or chapter 44, verse 5. It's a bit of a unit that hangs together. So Isaiah 43, 1 uh, through 44, 5. This is the Word of God. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob... He who formed you, Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Which of their gods foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right, so that others may hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I am not some foreign god among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days I am He. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's Creator, your King. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen. The people I formed for myself, that... They may proclaim my praise. Yet you have not called on me, Jacob. You have not wearied yourselves for me, Israel. You have, brought me, you have not brought me sheep for burnt offerings, nor honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with grain offerings, nor wearied you with demands for incense. You have not brought any fragrant calamus for me, or lavished on me the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins, and wearied me with your offenses, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Review the past for me. Let us argue the matter together. State the case for your innocence. Your first father sinned. Those I sent to teach you rebelled against me, so I disgraced the dignitaries of your temple. I consigned Jacob to destruction and Israel to scorn. But now listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. Some will say, I belong to the Lord. Others will call themselves by the name of Jacob. Still, others will write on their hand the Lord's and will take the name Israel. Before we uh, begin to look at this passage together, let's pray. Lord, we would ask that uh, in Your grace, You would meet us here in this place now. Uh, We know that You are everywhere, and yet You work and manifest Yourself in different ways. And so we would pray that this morning, You would pour out Your Spirit upon us. Uh, We would pray that You would help us to understand Your Word, to profit from it, and to be uh, gripped and transformed by it. You are a living God. And so we ask, that what you, we ask that you will work in such a way this morning that it will not be possible to attribute things to human psychology or to uh, anything that we can generate, but that what will happen will transparently, uh, forcibly be explainable only by the intervention of a sovereign God. And so we look to you. You, you can do all things. You, you, you claim that. And so we ask that you will uh, meet us here now as the living, holy God and transform our lives. Lord, speak to us by your word. You know uh, the circumstances of our weeks. Uh, you know the circumstances in which we live. You know uh, everything about us, and so you know what brings us here this morning. Be merciful to us. Uh, forgive us for our sins and meet us with not only power, but also compassion and love. Lord, make us a, a loving and compassionate people. Help us to understand Your grace and then to mediate Your grace to others. Do this, we pray. Uh, do it for Your own namesake, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we, as we work through Isaiah uh, together... One of the things that you begin to see is a pretty strong contrast that's drawn at different times between uh, the character of human beings, sometimes following God but usually not, and the character of God who continues even in judgment to have mercy and to shed grace and compassion uh, onto not only the nations but particularly His covenant people, Israel. And it's easy to to lose those uh, big themes uh, in the book. It's easy to start getting tied down into trying to understand, you know, what what this image or this verse means. But if you can just keep tracking with those big ideas uh, that there is wrath and judgment because of sin… But God is also a God of of immense grace and compassion and mercy who's meeting His people, who's restoring His people, and redeeming His people through transformation and forgiveness. And Then you'll be able to work through the book uh, a little bit better. Now, this section that we read also actually reveals an awful lot about the character of God. So as we read through this, there's lots of things, of course, that I'm not going to be saying, lots of things that are worth commenting on, but I just want to draw our attention a little bit uh, to how God reveals His own character, facets of Himself that He wants us to understand. So it begins, and of course, this is, this is coming in the context. If you've been working through the book, hopefully you remember the context. Last week, particularly, uh, we spent time looking at the servant of the Lord. Who is this person who is sometimes Israel and sometimes not Israel? That is, who is this servant who is uh, fallen, wicked, blind, and deaf, Israel, But also, uh, perfectly pleasing to God, who sees clearly and who actually has a ministry to redeem Israel. Well, it can only be the king. It, It can only be that person who is the representative head of Israel, but not just any king. A king who is flawless and perfect, and eventually, as we'll see in Isaiah 53, a king who will suffer and die for the people of God. So, this servant is sort of looked at in, in, in different ways. Uh, there's sort of a dual identity to the servant of the Lord here in this book. And so, last week, we were introduced to him in chapter 42. Now, you move, you're move. you not supposed to forget him. You're going to spiral. Uh, Isaiah's going to spiral back to him. Uh, but you're supposed to retain that idea. The servant of the Lord is going to have this ministry. Now, what else is God doing? How, and then how is it going to be connected? Well, in chapter forty-three, God begins by reminding Israel of this. Literally, He says that He is their Creator and Former. Uh, that is, He is u- the language that's being used is language that you find in Genesis chapter one. God is forming, or Genesis one and two rather. God is forming Israel out of nothing, the way He formed the world, the way He formed Adam. And so, that's the first thing God wants to remind His people of. Do not forget that I am your maker. Everything else that you need to assess needs to be assessed in that framework. I am your maker. I am the one who has formed you. So, not only then does God own us, not only then are we answerable to Him, but but you're to be reminded of the fact that God wants you to exist If God makes us out of nothing, then God could have been perfectly content without forming us at all. The fact that we don't exist intrinsically, the fact that we need to be brought into existence and God is the only one who can bring us into existence is proof that God wants us to exist. And so He's made us. He's formed us. He is our former and creator. But not only that, Far more important for us in our state, actually, is not only that God has created and formed us, but we don't need to fear because He has redeemed us. These two things, Creator and Redeemer, are essential to understand in terms of the character of God. These two things run through the whole canon of God's revelation. If you want to understand God, there's a lot to know, but in terms of relationship with Him, He is your former and maker, and He is your redeemer. You you get those as two anchor points. Uh, These are two foundation blocks, and Isaiah pushes this again and again and again and again, because if you don't get this, you won't understand who God is and who you are in relationship with Him. He made you and he has bought you. He made you and he has purchased you. He has redeemed you, creator and redeemer. He says, I have summoned you by name and you are mine. That is, you are not merely part of an enormous crowd. Uh, God does not sort of love generally and statistically. Uh, God loves very specifically, and so the, the miracle actually also, and you get this even in, in, in sort of the definition of the word world the, in, in John's gospel, uh, the point is never that God loves so many people uh, as if God's love is impressive because it's, it's quantitative. The point is always that God's love is impressive because it's qualitative. It, it's, it's not just look at the number of people, it's look at the type of people. You know, not only are they small, not only are they finite, uh, not only are are they so limited in capacity in every other way, but they're sinful, Uh, they're rebellious, they're wicked. And and so when we're told that, you know, for God so loved the world, you know, the point is, look, look at the number of people, the point is, look at the quality of God's love, that God's love can even swallow up all of the evil arrayed against Him on this little planet. Uh, It's that God loves something that's so intrinsically rebellious that's the heart of God. It's qualitative love, that He can love something that's so unlovable. Uh, it's far more impressive than if He can love a lot of people. And so God all, not only makes us, but He redeems us, and He redeems us specifically. He says, I know your name. I've summoned you. You belong to me. And so, the God who exists in perfect internal fulfillment in His triune relationships, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, forms and creates out of nothing people that He will redeem because He wants to know them, and He wants them to know Him. And this is one of the most incredible things that you could ever possibly imagine. God wanted you, specifically as an individual, to have life and being and existence. You. And it wasn't that God was surprised that you ended up going off the rail and doing some bad things. It wasn't that God was amazed that somehow you didn't actually live a perfect life. God brought you into existence knowing your sin Knowing everything you would do, everything you would think, every, every act of folly, every act of evil, uh, all of the things you thought, all the things you felt, God knew every single thing there would ever be to know about you and still wanted you to exist, brought you into this world, created and formed you so that through Jesus Christ you could be redeemed and know Him and live in, a, in, in paradise with Him forevermore. That's what God wants. That's what God has done. And even now, there's this promise. Listen, you can pass through water, you can pass through rivers, you can pass through fire, and I will protect you. I will take care of you. Why? Verse 3, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. In other words, not only is God our maker and our redeemer, he's our protector, he he keeps us safe through trial, and he's our deliverer, he's our savior. All of these things are true of us, or sorry, are true of God and his relationship with us. He's also the holy one, set apart, all uh, uniquely, categorically on his own. When he talks about giving Egypt for your ransom, of course, this is a cast back to Exodus uh, where Israel is in in slavery and God gives over Egypt to free his people. So, God gives people in exchange uh, for Israel. Why? Verse 4, since you are precious and honored in my sight and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. And and this is one of those verses where where, where you almost have to stop and and go back and reread the context to try to figure out who's talking here, who's speaking, and who on earth are they talking about? We are to praise God. We are to honor God. God is to be precious to us. We are to love God. But here God is talking to His people. You are precious. You are honored in my sight. You know, see, there must be a mistake. God... Like do you know us? You know, like, like do you, are you aware of of Israel? Like do you know what Israel is like? Uh, did you forget the first 39 chapters like, like this is your revelation we are precious in your sight this people are honored in your sight like this people and then to fast forward you know 2750 years uh, do, you, do, you, do you realize what the church is actually going to be like like not in theory oh in theory it's so glorious and beautiful which is why the reality can be so distressing sometimes It can be so discouraging to see all that the church is installed in glory, the the way that the church is positionally at the right hand of God, even now with Christ, and you see that, and you see how the church is supposed to function ideally, and oh, it's so overwhelming in its beauty, and if the church was like that, it would change the world. And then, not here, of course, where we have it all together, you're... Your pastor's 40, for goodness sakes, a fount of wisdom and experience. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) But you you, you hear that there may be other churches where where there may be difficulty. You You can scarcely believe it being part of this group, right? You say, God, really, like, how can we be precious and honored in your sight? You honor us. How is that possible? How can we be that precious to you? How? You made us out of nothing. We should be be lost in love and adoration, honoring and praising and glorifying you. The the, the scandals that you aren't precious in our sight compared to what you deserve. And yet you honor us. You love us. You, You see, if you've been reading the book thoughtfully, the fact that God says that to us, and He's not being sarcastic, that says an awful lot about God, very little about us. Th- this is not a commentary on how, on how really valuable and upstanding we are as people. This is a commentary on the heart of God. Again, it's not, look at the types of lovable people that God loves. It's, Look, God's love is is, is so vast and infinite that there is no one He can't love, precious and honored in His sight. Do not be afraid. I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. This is the return from exile. Verse 7. And the reason he's doing this is that I will call everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Here's where you're told. Here's where you're given the reason from verse 1. Why does God create and form us? It's for His glory. God makes us. God has made you. Not not, not just the human race, but, but this is you now. This is you as a specific individual. God has made you for His glory. And you will glorify God. You will. Y- you will do that either voluntarily and with rejoicing, or you will reveal the glory of God in different ways, in, in, in wrath and judgment and, and holiness. But either way, every, every person who has been made uh, will one day be contributing to the glory of God. That's why you exist. Then in verse 8 and following, he says, you know, to gather the people to bring them out. Uh, And there's a contrast here uh, between the nations, uh, the gods of the nations and the Lord God. And God is saying, listen, what have all the other gods ever done for their people? What have they ever accomplished? What have they ever foretold? I am the one uh, who leads you on. I, before me, there is no other God. You are my witnesses. I have told you what's happening, and now I'm doing it. Verse 11, I, even I am the Lord. Apart from me, there is no Savior. So again, of all the things you're being told about God here, he's, he's your Savior. He's revealed and saved and proclaimed, not some other foreign God. And then verse 13, his sovereignty Yes, and from ancient days I am He. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? When God wants to accomplish something, there is no one who can turn His hand back. No one. Not not an angel, not a demon, not a human being, not a God. There is nothing, there is no one who can turn back the hand of God from accomplishing all that He purposes. Now, so then it's just a very short list. I mean, you you start working through this chapter, and in 13 verses, you're told that God is your creator, your deliverer, your protector, your redeemer, your savior, and your sovereign. Those are just things that are just just embedded in this text. So then the re—and then the, the entailment of it is, so you don't need to be afraid, God knows you. He's made you. He's your Savior. He loves you. You're precious and honored in His sight. He's calling you to Himself. That's your God, the Holy One of Israel. And whenever you hear that phrase, Holy One of Israel, you're supposed to retain that vision in Isaiah 6. God who is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with His glory, the seraphs cry. Isaiah cries out, Woe to me, for I, I am undone. And then, symbolically, that coal from the altar of atonement is placed on Isaiah's lips, purifying him. Guilt is removed. Sin is atoned for. And that idea from, from the very beginning is that God is so holy that in our sin we are ruined and undone when we stand before Him. Unless there's a substitutionary sacrifice which that altar symbolized, unless there is a sacrifice which takes away our sin, But if there is, if God atones for our sin, then all of a sudden, standing in the presence of the one who is holy, holy, holy is not something which results in our death. It is something which results in our joy. Because that one who is the holy one of Israel loves us. He honors us. We're precious in His sight. He's made us. He's formed us. You, made for the glory of God, you summoned by name to belong to Him. And living this side of the New Testament, you also can't help but hear the words of Jesus in John 10 as the Good Shepherd, calling His sheep by name. That's what you get here uh, in Isaiah 43. Now, verses 14 through 28, you have God revealed again as the Holy One of Israel, your King. Verses 14 and 15, this is, it's an inclusio. This is what the Lord says, Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord, your Holy One. There's that inclusio, repetition of Holy One. Israel's Creator, your King. So now you have this this additional thought. I mean, it's sort of, it's entailed by Holy One, uh, but He's the Creator, Redeemer, reminding you of those two things, Creator, Redeemer, Holy One of Israel, repeated twice, and also this addition, in case it escaped your notice, He is also your King. He is the King who rules over everything. He is the King who rules specifically in a joyous way over His people, but he is also king of all the nations. He is king of the universe, specifically though, Israel's creator, your king. That is, as part of his covenant people, you can uh, willingly bow the knee and acknowledge him as your king. He is yours. He, he reigns on your behalf. And of course, of course we find this also uh, in, in Paul's writings. Ephesians, Colossians, that Jesus is resurrected, Jesus is raised to life, all things are put under His feet for the sake of the church, Paul writes. I mean, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't have the temerity to say that unless it was inspiration. You know, that, that Jesus is ruling and reigning over all things for what? For the church. Why? You know, out of all the things you could rule and reign for, why for the church? And again, there's just no explanation except that's the God that He is. That's what He does. He is the King of His covenant people. He identifies with them and they identify with Him. And so then God reminds Israel, verses 16 and following, uh, verses 16 and 17, about the Exodus. Remember, this is the prototype. This is the paradigm of redemption. Oppressed, enslaved, dying, substitutionary blood and Passover, angel of death passes by, liberation into the promised land. That's that paradigm of redemption, prototypically. And so Israel is always being reminded that God has done this. They're always being told, look, don't forget what I did for you in the Exodus. Don't forget about that redemption. But, in Isaiah, and the prophets, one of the things that they're doing is they're saying, don't forget, but it's time to forget. You know, you don't, don't stop remembering, but it's time to move on. You know, God is doing a new thing. And if you're always looking back, even at times of deliverance, even at times when God did something great for you in the past, you will miss out on what God is willing to do for you today. You know, there are some people who, who, who still not only remember things that God has done for them, but they still live back there. You know, that, that when, you, when, they, when they share their testimony, they talk about the grace of God in their life. It's, it's always something he did a long time ago, and it's good to remember what God has done a long time ago. It's good to remember what God has done in the recent past. But, it, but if all you do is live there in those moments of grace and deliverance, maybe those, those, those mountaintops of worship or that trial that God brought you through, if all you do is live there, you, you'll, you'll never move forward. And that's what God is calling His people to do. It's, it's, time, it's time to go. Yes, 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 yes. I I brought you out of Egypt. Don't forget that. That was centuries ago, Israel. Moses is long gone. David is long gone. So remember, learn from the past. Learn from the legacy of what I've done. But don't live there. Today is a new day. I'm doing a new thing. And one of the amazing things that the prophets will teach you is the prophets will teach you that actually what God is doing now is greater than what He did even in the Exodus. If you'll just look and see. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? In other words, maybe I'll be doing this, but you won't won't be paying attention. Maybe you won't see the new thing because you'll be so focused on the past. The past was glorious. I did some things there, but I'm not done in your life. There's something new. I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. But as Israel, Remember, Israel was, was taken care of in the wilderness, but now the wilderness is being transformed. The wild animals honor me. I provide water in the wilderness, streams in the wasteland, to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself that they may proclaim my praise. Maybe in the past, God did something great in your life like He did for Israel. Maybe in the past, God got you through a wilderness. Maybe you you went through a really dry and difficult time. Maybe you went through a wilderness time and God got you through and you're thankful for that and you can look back after however long it's been, you can see the grace and the hand of God in your life at that time, even then, and you're thankful and, and you recognize the blessing of God as hard as it was and you realize that God can get you through the wilderness. He can. But if all you do is is take comfort in the fact that God can get you through the wilderness, you might miss out on the fact that God's plan for you this time is not to get you through the wilderness, it's to transform it into a garden. That God is at work to make the, the wasteland flow with living water. And the other imagery that we've seen in Isaiah 35 is that God takes the wilderness, and, and all of a sudden there are trees growing, and, and, and He takes the desert, and all of a sudden there's plants everywhere, and there's foliage, and all of a sudden there's streams, and there's rivers, and it's in a whole oasis that God has made. And you say, oh my goodness, the, He's doing a new thing, and it's so much better than what He did in the past. And and this is what God does for His people. This is what God offers to His people if they will see it. And some people don't want to see that. They they, they want God always to work the same way. God's saying, no, I'm not doing that. If I keep doing the same thing, then you will begin to put me in a box even more than you already do. No, 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 there's something new for you this time. There's something bigger than you can imagine. What I did for you in the past was a shadow of what I have for you in the future. So don't just live back there. Don't, don't stop my power there. Don't have your faith take you only that far. I'm going to take you farther. I'm going to take you deeper. I'm going to give you more than you could ever possibly have imagined. I'm not getting you through the barren time. I'm transforming it into a garden. Now, why is He doing that? Verse 21 is the, sort of the, the, the comparable to verse 7. Verse 7, whom I created for my glory, verse 21, that I formed for myself that they may proclaim my praise. And so God is working in the lives of His people because He made them for His glory so they could proclaim His praise. That's what we ought to be doing, glorifying God and praising His name. But what actually has His people been doing? verse 22 to the end of the chapter, tell you that rather than than praising God, the people have not really, they haven't spent a lot of time really being overly concerned with God. They haven't spent an awful lot of time bringing God's sacrifices. They they haven't spent a lot of time in God's Word. They they haven't really been living for God at all. In fact, far from bringing Him sacrifices, all they're doing is bringing Him their sins. That's all they're doing. They're bringing him their iniquities. Uh, They're they're wearing him out, not with praise, but with iniquity. They're they're not bringing him sacrifices. They're bringing him sins. And so this is God who has made them informed. This is God who loves them. This is God who has done all of these things for them, and they still are only coming to him, bringing their sin, bringing their rebellion, bringing their iniquity. I think, well, my goodness, what is God going to do now? I mean, after all that God has done for them, they're, they're created for His glory, they're created for His praise, and they're not doing that. They're not praising Him. They're not fulfilling their function. They're not fulfilling their purpose. So what will God do? What you're told is that as much as God is burdened with their sins and wearied with their offenses, He's simply going to blot them out. Verse 25 not blot out the people, but blot out their sin. I, even I, am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sin no more." Remembers your sin no more. This does not mean that God literally has a gap in His knowledge. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows everything that you've done. But it means that he will not act on the basis of what your guilt deserves. He chooses to provide atonement for your sin so that he does not need to treat you as you ought to be treated. He blots out your sin so that when he looks at the record, he sees that the sin has been paid for and he is free to lavish blessing upon you. And so that's what he does. He does. And lest you think it's because you almost deserve it, verses 26 through 28, He reminds you not only have you burdened Him with your sin, but you come from a lineage of sinners. Uh, you come from a sea of a sinful inheritance and a sinful legacy. But now, chapter 44, but now, after reminding you of your sin, after promising to blot it out, Listen, Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen, this is what the Lord says, he who made you, who formed you in the womb, so we've heard this again and again and again in this section, creator and maker, who will help you. Do not be afraid, we've heard this again and again, Jacob, my servant, gesture on whom I have chosen. Now, why? How is it that we cannot be afraid when there is a holy God who, when he acts, no one can stop him, and he is burdened by our sin, he's been wearied by our sin, how is it that we don't need to be afraid? because of this. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. The people are sinful. They've come from a sinful lineage but the next generation is going to be different. That's the promise. I am going to pour my spirit out on your descendants. Do you realize that for all that we are and aren't as the people of God, Just the next generation can actually better, they can actually be better than we are. And this is what we ought to be praying for. And this should be the goal of our Sunday school and our children's church and all of the rest, is to see a generation raised up. That I almost want to say, and I want to be careful here, I don't want to offend anyone, But wouldn't it be great to see a generation, like as a generation, that actually gets it? Like, like, like that really gets this, not just in theory, but how to live it out? That, that all of the… to have just one, just one generation, where all of, all of the petty politicking of church life is just it's just not there. Just one generation where there isn't factions in the church. Just one generation where there aren't competing, you know, secondary theological ideologies which are divisive. Just just one generation where people have the fruit of the Spirit in, in large quantity, like a harvest of it. Just one generation where that, that dry ground, that thirsty land is satisfied by the gift of the Spirit, the, the, the reign of the Holy Spirit of God. Reign in two ways, R-A-I-N and R-E-I-G-N, the reign of the Spirit of God in His people that'd be pretty great. I'd, I'd like to see that. You know, it, it, what you'd want to do is, is you'd want to, if you were me, you'd, you'd want to retire at 40 and just get out of the way and, and, and just see it. You know, just just watch it. Uh, and, and And the fear would be that, that those of us who are older would just mess it up. Yeah, you know, that we'd bring all of our baggage, all of the ways that we're used to doing things, all of our habits, that we just, we just get in the way. And sometimes you know, that, that's easy to pray. Lord, just, you know, it was, you know, Florence Nightingale, a, a great, a great principle uh, of nursing. Do no harm. <laughs> like, that's it. Do no harm. Just, just that. Just, just don't mess it up. Why is that so hard? Why is that so hard to do? Just do no harm, and let the Spirit of God work in the next generation to raise them up and to gift them to be the generation that we need, so that people will say, "Verse five, I belong to the Lord." Others will call themselves by the name of Jacob. Still, others will write on their hand, "The Lord's." Yeah, this is this is. This is hardly this is this is like Isaiah. Not even being Baptist. They're tattooing on their hand that they belong to the Lord. This is scandalous. You know, This is against the bylaws or something, probably. You know, and yet here they are. They're, they're writing on their hand. No, they're identifying, I belong to God. I I want everyone to know it. I put His seal on my body. Uh, I I put His mark on my body. It's symbolic, I understand. Don't don't be too upset. But but the whole idea is, is no, I, I want people to know I am God's. And this is what happens. God loves us and honors us and summons us by name so that we are His people. And the twin reflex of truth is that He is our God. And we want people to know, He's my God. That Creator, Redeemer, Sustainer, Protector, Deliverer, Ransomer, Sovereign, Savior, He is my God. I'll write it on my hand. His spirit writes it on my heart I am his and he is mine And because of that all of a sudden we who are precious and honored in his sight because he transforms us all of a sudden he becomes precious and honored in our sight and we're glad he made us formed us for his glory and to sing his praise. let well, may God help us. May God help us to be filled by the Spirit. All of this is accomplished by the servant of the Lord on our behalf. May we we walk in it and live in it. May we exist formed for God that we may proclaim His praise. We have a small opportunity to do that together in song, so I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in a song of praise to our God.